At Anchor, yeah. At Anchor, uh, it's pretty simple. We are a community of imperfect Jesus followers living for the good of Tacoma and the greater South Sound. Let me break that down uh, so that it really sticks. We are a community. Look around you. We are people together from different walks of life, different parts of the city, different parts of the South Sound, different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities. We are a community of imperfect. You can know that. We are imperfect. Somebody came up to me a couple weeks ago and like, we love Anchor. I'm like, well, give me a couple weeks. We'll probably let you down. We are a community of imperfect, but we are Jesus followers, right? We are Jesus followers and we're living for the good of Tacoma and the greater South Sound. Hey, um, you know, from the very first Easter, there was something that Jesus followers said and, and, and responded. It's kind of this sacred call and response thing stretching all the way back to that first Easter, like I mentioned, and it begins with me saying he is risen, and then you're going to say, don't, not yet, don't worry, I'm just priming you. If you're new to church and you're like, what do I say? Don't worry, I'm telling you your lines. You're going to say he is risen indeed, okay? So we're on the count of three, I'm going to say he is risen. Your response is he is risen indeed. Everybody ready? Everybody ready for this? All right, I think we're ready. He is, all right, no. Count of three. One, two, three. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, well, you know, uh, I'm thinking uh, this past week, I've been thinking about my freshman year in college. And leading up to my freshman year in college, I ran, uh, I, I went on so many runs, I was in training, and you're thinking, why would you ever do that? You are, sounds like you're one of those crazy people that likes to run. Well, guilty, uh, but I was doing it for a purpose. You see, I wanted to make the collegiate cross-country and track team at Central Washington University I know, my, my sights weren't totally high, you know, D2, not D1, but, uh, but I had, I'd had this desire to make the team. All through high school, I was like good enough to be on JV in the first two years of my high school and varsity on the second two years. So if you know anything about sports in a high school, you know I was like, eh, okay, but not super great. So it meant that that summer I had to work as hard as I possibly could to get to the point where I made the team uh, at college. And I remember sometimes going on uh, like 13, 14, 15 mile runs, some people would drive by me three times during my run and later on in the day they'd say, hey, uh, was that you all three of those times? Like what, you looked like you were going to die. And I was like, I actually felt like I was going to die. So um, we were aligned there on that. But I was, I was doing all of this so that when I got to training camp and we had the time trial, I would make the cut. You see, only 10 people were allowed on the cross-country team, and everybody else got sent home and welcomed back when school actually started. And so when I towed the line, I wanted to be ready. I looked to the left, I saw some people that clearly were faster than me. I looked to the right, I saw some people that were clearly faster than me, but I knew that I had trained really hard, and so through the course of the time trial, I muscled my way to third place on the team. I know, pretty rad, pretty rad. The bummer is I worked so hard during the summer that about three weeks into the season, I was burned out, my legs fried up, and I was about the very back of every race. It was a short-lived victory. Um... But all through the summer, up to that point where I towed the line, I was asking this question that I think every one of us in here is familiar with. It's this question that goes like this, am I good enough? Raise your hand if you've ever asked that internally, underneath the surface, maybe not spoken. We have some honest people in the house today. 
I'm convinced that this question of am I good enough is something that we ask in silent and subtle, out loud, in confidence to friends, ways, at all of the major transition points in our life. We ask it in job interviews, when people are grilling us and, and are saying, hey, are you a fit? And we're responding with our, our eloquence and our confidence that we're manufacturing on the spot despite the sweat coming down our face. You know, I'm convinced that it's either psychopaths or people that have a lot, had a lot of counseling that can be like confident in the interview chair, right? So it's either people that are unhealthy or really healthy. But most people are asking, you know, am I good enough in that space? And others of us, we ask it internally when we get the stuff, the confidence to ask that crush out on a date. Maybe some of us remember that. We stutter and stammer like, would you, would you, hey, maybe, could you? And the, un, in under the surface, we're asking, am I good enough? And like I mentioned, we ask it, of course, when we're trying out for a team, we ask it when we're waiting for our mortgage broker to get back to us, if we can buy a house, am I good enough? And here's the tragedy, though, when we ask the question with regard to church. You see, as I mentioned, I'm a church planner, and here's what you need to know about church planners, is that we are interested in finding and reaching people that aren't already connected to a church. If you are a churchy, religious person, uh, the first couple years, I was not that interested in hanging out with you. Sorry, guilty. Because, you know, church planters want to reach people that aren't already connected with the church. And I remember some of those first couple years, some of the conversations that I had with people that weren't affiliated with the church or weren't, weren't interested in a church, they became, they were pretty interesting. I remember, you know, because, you know, we asked this a lot of each other when somebody said, okay, well, what do you do for a living? And I would say, well, I'm a, a church planter. And they'd look at me weird. They wouldn't know quite what that was. And I said, All right, well, I'm a pastor. And then there was more silence. And I kind of just enjoyed that. I just kind of sat in that silence and just kind of ate my proverbial popcorn waiting for the next thing, hoping they didn't leave. But as the conversation got a little deeper, this is where the tragedy happened is I started to hear a familiar pattern. You know, most of the people that weren't connected with the church or, or involved or understood much about Christianity or about Jesus, they, weren't, they didn't say, you know, I am intellectually opposed to it or I'm ideologically opposed to it. Most of the people said something like this when we got real and honest. I just don't know if I'm good enough. Which is something that repeatedly broke my heart. One of my favorite songs right now is by Chance the Rapper. It's called Child of God. And he has a line in there where he says, uh, I'm following Jesus with wet feet. If you're familiar with the Bible, he's drawing on the story of Peter trying to step out towards Jesus in the water and starting to sink, right? And so Chance is identifying with Peter. And I think all of us can identify with Peter. And if you don't identify with Peter, you're not honest because we are imperfect, right? And so it's a bummer that people outside of the church would have this impression of the church that they're not good enough when we're all not good enough. I have this uh, conviction here at Anchor that, you know, we have no space for this holier-than-thou, stodgy, lift-up-your-nose religiosity, right? No space for that. In fact, I believe that Jesus didn't have any space for that either, the second thing that's interesting is about this, like, am I good enough or am I not good enough when it comes to church, is that, you know, actually, when you think about it, the prerequisite for being in a relationship with God is admitting that you're not good enough. 
And the only disqualification for being in a relationship with God is thinking that you're good enough. (laughs) And there's nowhere perhaps more clearly that this is demonstrated in Scripture than in the resurrection accounts. You see, Jesus could have come back from the dead and shown up to his disciples and with like a little billy club and say, you idiots! Why, why, you slept when I was praying in the garden, you denied me, you distanced yourself from me, but all through the three years you saw me do things that no one else did. Couldn't you just track with me for a moment? But instead he doesn't. He shows up right in the middle of the disciples' sorrow. He shows up right in the middle of the disciples' fear. He shows up right in the middle of the disciples' doubt. And let me just tell you a secret. He's still showing up in the midst of modern-day disciples' sorrow, fear, and doubt. First point I want to talk about is that, that Jesus meets us in our sorrow. Jesus meets us in our sorrow. One of the... Uh, most well-known disciples um, is a woman uh, named Mary Magdalene. Now, you might not see her as a disciple or think about her as a disciple, but let me assure you, she is 100% a disciple. Because in Luke chapter 8, and by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, they are kind of like the biography accounts of Jesus recording the birth, the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in the beginning of Luke, you know, Luke chapter 8, when things are still getting moving and Jesus is developing his discipleship cadre, Mary is mentioned there. And in fact, in, eight, in, verse eight, or in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, it talks about how Jesus uh, healed Mary from demonic possession, said she had seven demons, and that must have been a rough go for her, but Jesus healed her from that. You can imagine if, if you had seven demons taken out of you and, and you're, you're delivered, then you probably want to hang out with the guy that helped you out with that one. So Mary stayed with Jesus, it says, and just kept following him. In fact, in verse 3, it says that she actually gave financially to the work of Jesus so that more people would experience from Jesus what she experienced. And then uh, after years of walking with Jesus, three years of walking with Jesus, seeing him heal lepers, and seeing, hearing him give teaching that like, was unlike any other teaching, and, and, and witnessing the multiplication of loaves and seeing everything because she was in eyewitness proximity to Jesus for all of that. And after a few years of seeing this beautiful ministry unfold from Jesus' firsthand experience, they kill him. And she's crushed. John chapter 20, verse 11, and begins like this. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, 
She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. One thing I love about Mary here is that she is unabashed about like feeling her feelings and not, blind, not burying her anger. I love this. In fact, in the face of the angels, and it doesn't say that Mary didn't know they were angels. And it's pretty clear, it seems, that Mary actually knew they were angels. And the angels are like, what's the deal? And she's like, you dumb angels, you don't know what's been happening. They took Jesus, they killed Jesus now, they took his body, and I don't know where he is. You're angels, shouldn't you know this kind of thing? She is uh, not bashful. And then she hears uh, from Jesus, even though she doesn't know it's Jesus, why are you crying? And she's like, listen, okay, if you took the body, could you at least just tell me where it is? Because this man gave me everything that I'm experiencing. All the serenity and sanity that I have is because of him, and I just at least want to honor him. And then verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. You know, there's something about a name, right? There's something about hearing your name from someone else's lips. In fact, it says she turned towards him, meaning that she was so frustrated, angry and disgusted, she was looking away, just kind of writing whoever this guy was that she was talking to off. She's like, come on, come on. And then she heard her name with the vocal intonations of one she had heard before. Remember, can you think about the first time she heard her name from Jesus? It was probably when she was ex- the demons were exercised and she got free and experienced that sanity and serenity for the first time. Mary, and she had this clarity of mind that she had not had before. Mary. I imagine other times it was probably around the table. She was eating with Jesus and, and, and Jesus turned towards her. Maybe the disciples were having some conversation and, and Jesus turned towards her and he just said, hey Mary, maybe asked a question. I imagine other times maybe, and this is imagination, I admit, but I imagine other times when Jesus was, was maybe having to exhort her or challenge her and say, now Mary, she knew what her name sounded like in his voice. And she erupted with this mother tongue declaration, Rabboni, teacher. Can I just tell you, that Jesus will meet you in your sorrow. Jesus will meet you in your frustration. He did with Mary. He's still doing it. And in fact, I think that oftentimes we play this game, maybe you know it, that I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine game. You know the dog with all the flames around him? He goes, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Some of you know this game. How are you doing? I'm fine, I'm fine, you know? I think the more we play that game, when there's something actually deep happening within ourselves, when there really is anger, when there really is sadness, the more we blanket it over, we cover it up and say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. The more we do that, the more we run from the place where God actually wants to meet us. God wants to show up right there at the point of tension, not in the point of covering it up so that we can look good and play good. And play church. He wants to meet us in the sorrow. 
I can't think of a better uh, contemporary example of this than the author Anne Lamott. Um, her book, Traveling Mercies, is the documentation of really her coming to faith in Jesus. And let me just tell you, if you have it in your Amazon cart already, um, because you're hearing me talk about it, one, props to you. That's quick work with the fingers. Second, um, be on guard. It's a pretty shaking book. She is not your churchy type of person. It doesn't come from that churchy background. Um, in fact, the, story, the quote that I'm about to read she uh, has just had an abortion, and she's on and off the pills and on and off the bottle, and somehow she stumbles into a church once and then stumbles into a church twice, and we pick it up here. And one week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time, I stayed for the sermon, which I just thought was so ridiculous. Anybody? Uh, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time, and I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened to that feeling, and it washed over me. I began to cry, and I left before the benediction, and I raced home, and I felt like a, this little cat. Now, earlier on, she talks about Jesus pursuing her like a little cat, so that's a reference to that. I felt like this little cat running along at my heels, and I walked down the dock past a dozen of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat and I stood there in a minute, uh, there a minute, and then I hugged my, hung my head and said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. Anne and Mary share a similar story of meeting Jesus in the midst of the unimaginable sorrow and experiencing Jesus with unimaginable healing. Let me just tell you, some of us that are in the midst of sorrows, whether we're Jesus followers or not, the story can be yours as well. Jesus wants to meet you in the middle of it. Don't cover over it. Don't pretend it doesn't exist, but open yourself to him and you'll find a level of healing Mark my words that you have maybe not experienced yet. But it's not just sorrow. Jesus will meet you in your fear. Chapter, John chapter 20, verse 19. We pick up. We, the story continues. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands inside, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You know what's something that's important to note about this story is that they've locked the doors, which means no one's entering and no one's leaving. No one is going anywhere. Why? Because they're afraid that what happened to Jesus might happen to them, and so they want to make sure that no one sees them and no one leaves and no one enters. This is what fear does. Fear locks the door so no one can enter and no one can leave. So you stay in this place of fear and panic prevented from forward movement. Fear keeps you stuck in the moment and keeps you from forward movement. 
fear keeps you from the faith commitment in Christ because it fixates on what the cost might be and ignores that it's what your soul needs. Fear keeps you from the courageous vocational journey because it focuses on the what-ifs more than the opportunity. Fear locks the door and doesn't let anyone enter and doesn't let anyone exit. But guess what? Jesus somehow finds his way in. Despite the locked doors in this John 20 resurrection appearance, Jesus shows up right in the midst of the disciples' fear. And in classic Jesus form, he doesn't berate. He doesn't shake his head. He doesn't say, you idiots, how come you're afraid? Haven't you seen all the cool things that I've done? Come on, come on, come on. He says, peace be with you. He knows what a fearful disciples need is not a strong religious exhortation, but an encouragement that they are safe because they're with him. The way Jesus knows this, the way we get out of fear is not by shake it off, man up, but somebody stepping in into the middle of our fear and assuring us that they're not going to leave and they come to bring peace. What will happen immediately after this will that Jesus will call them to high levels of courage. He'll say, I'm sending, just the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. But right before that, he does something significant. He says, hey, check this out. I know you're afraid. Take a look at my hands. Take a look at my wrists. Take a look at my side. And so he says, He showed them his hands and his side. Here's the thing. When they see his hands and when they see his side, the marks of his death, now um, no, no longer wounds but healed scars, when they see that, they know that they have no reason to fear because the world has thrown everything at Jesus and he's still there. He's still there. And so... They know that the world can throw everything at them and they still, in an important way, will be there. Fear has no place. When you know, and this is simplistic, but I'm going I'm to put a caveat that's important. When you know about the wounds that are scars on, on Jesus' body, when you know that he has defeated death, fear has no place. Now, I know that's simplistic. I know some of us are stuck in this place of fear in our own little locked places or the doors are locked and there's no entry and exit. I know that. But I'm saying the way forward is to slowly, intentionally, consistently reflect on the one who has defeated death. And when we realize that slowly, sometimes over years, sometimes in a moment, what we see is is that what the world can throw at us has no ultimate power. Because I'm with Jesus. I just want to say I know some of us right now have little locked spaces where we're at right now. And we may have even done a really good job of making everybody think that there's no fear in me, but there still really is this little locked space where no one's entering and no one's exiting and we may feel trapped. And I just want to say, Jesus, this is Jesus' specialty. He's an expert lock pick. You you might just open that spot to him. You might just say, hey, you're, you're welcome in. 
and just see what happens. Jesus wants to meet us in our fear. Third, Jesus wants to meet us in our doubt. Verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and my hand into his side, he's like, dun, 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 I will not believe. Now, uh, just on the face of it, this is the best argument to be at church on time. You just don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Jesus might, you know, he just, oh, Jesus was there. Well, really? well, you should have been there, you know. <laughs> you should have been there. But it's interesting, it's like, where was Thomas? What happened to Thomas? Was he already moving on? Was he kind of, you know, everything we know for about Thomas, he was kind of like this literal, tactile person who likes bullet points and didn't understand metaphor. Didn't, you know, there was no books of poetry in Thomas's library. You know, that Thomas was this Luke, or, or John chapter 14. Jesus is like, you know, I'm going to be with the Father to create, you know, rooms, and I'm, you're going to come. He goes, what is this room you're talking about? It doesn't make sense to me. And, and Thomas just eventually drops it. Go to Luke, or John chapter 14. You'll see what I'm saying. But this is kind of who Thomas is. Maybe he just was who he is, and when Jesus died, he moved on. Or maybe it was too painful to even think about. So he distanced himself from anything that would remind him of the death of the one he followed. Maybe he just said, you know what? Whatever, I'm done with that. Maybe he compartmentalized it. Like, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, that, this painful thing happened, but I'm just going to, you know, have three drinks and, and have some nice food and, and, and read some good. Maybe I'm going to take a vacation. I, we don't know what he did. But it's fascinating to me just to ask the question. And then, secondarily, when the disciples shared the news, why couldn't he believe? What was keeping him from believing? Again, maybe too painful to entertain off limits, don't touch, don't tease me with that. When I think about some of the people that I built relationships with over the first few years of church planning, some of the people that said, I don't know if I'm your ty the type to go to church, I don't know if I'm good enough. When I think about some of those people that are still very close friends, uh, lots of times their doubt in God isn't because of an intellectual belief or an inability to believe in, in God but rather because of a deep hurt. The doubt is not because of something in their head, but because of something that happened in their heart. They've been too hurt by the world and were left wondering, where, where was God? Even after they maybe pray and ask that question aloud. Or they've been hurt too much by the church and believe in God still, but are afraid of the church. And oftentimes in our conversation, if our conversation allowed it, I would say, you know what's interesting? Is that the center of the Christian story is God allowing himself also to be hurt. But not just hurt, but hurt by religious authorities. Jesus was hurt by the church. He knows what it feels like. We don't worship a God who is immune from pain, who said, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to come into your world, but I'm, I'm going to be bulletproof so because I, I don't want to endure that whole painful stuff that you guys have to experience. No, he stepped into every aspect of it, took on our weight and our, and our sin on his shoulders and allowed it to wreck him. Jesus knows something about pain. 
Let me just tell you this. Well, as it keeps, it keeps going, in verse 26, it says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. I wonder if underneath Jesus' command to touch and to really experience, he knew something about Thomas, that he was a tactile, experiential person. He needed that experience of touching. Or maybe he knew that, that Thomas just was a doubter and he needed that type of proof. But also maybe he knew that Thomas was just hurt. I understand your hurt. So was I, Thomas. Can I just tell you, if you feel that heart hurt because of something in your past and are wondering about the nature of God and what's going on, if you can really believe, let me just say, Jesus will meet you in your doubt and he will come showing you his wounds and saying, I know what it feels like. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have, and this is for us, because you have seen me, you have believed. But this is, and this is for us, blessed are those, blessed are us, who have not yet seen, or who have not seen and yet have believed. Here's the good news. The good news. The good news is that Jesus will meet you in your sorrow, fear, and doubt. You don't have to clean up to get right with Jesus. You, he wants to meet you right in the middle of the fear and the sorrow and the doubt. He doesn't need your religious activities and mounting and stacking them on, a good GPA, a good job, a nice neighborhood. He doesn't need that to meet you. He wants to meet you right where you're at. That's the good news. But the good news gets better because not only does he want to meet you where you're at, but he won't leave you where you're at. The better news is that he won't leave you in your sorrow, your fear and doubt. He won't say, oh yeah, it's good hanging out with you, sorrowful person. See you later. Good hanging out with you, afraid person. He's not, that's not who he is. He'll say, come follow me. Let's work and move through this together. And here's the beautiful thing. Over the journey of walking with Jesus, you'll find the sorrow turn into joy. You'll see the fear morph into courage. And you'll see the doubt turn into courage confident belief. You'll see that if you walk with him. And then later on, somebody will come up to you in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of fear, and they'll confide in you what's happening in their heart. And you can say, hey, I also have wounds, but they've been healed. This is what happens. It's what happened with Mary. She was the first apostle the first one to encounter the risen Lord. And she ran to the disciples and told them the good news. And then the disciples, once they got it all straightened out in their head and actually started to believe what Mary was telling them, they went into all the world. In fact, given the option from the Roman Empire to die or give up their belief in Christ, they said, we'd rather die because what we've seen is too amazing. And to say it didn't happen would be such a betrayal. We can't even fathom it. We'll take death. Thomas, the doubter, tradition tells us, he went all the way to India telling people about Jesus and what he'd done. That's before cars. <laughs> it's before, like, you know, like, you know, trains. He walked a lot of that. 
It's a lot of blisters. It's hot there. It's the story not just of Mary and the disciples and Thomas. It's also your story. It's my story. A couple months ago, I was looking at a ninth grade picture of me. You know, the whole photography team comes in, smile. I didn't smile for that one. I was looking at this blank look in this ninth grade version of me's face. And I could see this kid that in some ways I didn't really know anymore. All the anger that he didn't know he was a feeling, but it was feeling it. All the fear that he didn't know he really he was feeling, he was fear, feeling it. All the sorrow, all the doubt, all the stuff that was wrapped around his mind and his heart like a thousand knots and a thousand chains. I was looking at this boy and seeing the midst of all of that stuff and how he was covering it over with, with every type of chemical and drug he could find and taking it in and he was hiding from all of that and hiding from others and just wrenched in this pain. And I just had this moment where I was just struck with grief for this young kid. But then I remembered that he didn't stay that way. That in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of all the other stuff happening in that boy's heart, he met Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus met him right there. And the good news is that Jesus didn't leave him right there. So I get to stand before you and say, look at my wounds. Look how Jesus healed them. And many of you get to do the same. If you find yourself in a place where, the, where you're wondering, he's waiting to meet you. He's waiting to meet you. It's simple. We just have to say, Jesus I know that I'm imperfect, and I know that you are. I know what, the, what you did on the cross meant that you could bring me in relationship with God. I just want to meet you. It's very simple. In fact, that's what we do at baptism. When people get baptized, and we're going to have some baptisms here, we're, in fact, over the anchor community of this weekend, we're having like 20 or so baptisms. Isn't that awesome? Romans 6 says, we go down under the water identifying with his death. We come out of the water identifying with his resurrection. With his resurrection. We have a video of some of the um, people that are getting baptized, just a, a sample, sampling of some of the people that are getting baptized this weekend. So we'll play that um, in just a second. And then the baptisms will happen. And I just want to say, we're going to have prayer stations in the front of those black backdrops. If you are in the middle of any of the things I mentioned today, Prayer is available for you today. Don't miss that opportunity.